First Peter chapter number two. And I want to preach to you tonight on the topic of the will of God, the will of God. Boy, there's not much more mysterious and elusive of a topic, is there, than the will of God? Let me begin by saying I do believe that God has a will. I believe that God has a specific will for each and every one of us. Uh, I believe that it is uh, detailed and deliberate. And I believe it is always according to His desires and not ours. First Peter chapter number 2, and I'd like to begin reading at verse number 11. The Bible says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you, as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme, or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God, that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free not, and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the King. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you again for this time you've allowed us. I pray that your Holy Spirit would have liberty throughout this entire service. Lord, through the Lord's Supper service, just through everything that will take place tonight, I pray that you'd have liberty to move on hearts. Father, if there's any amongst us lost and undone, show them their need of Calvary. Any backslidden, we pray that you'd reclaim them for your glory and honor. But Lord, for all of us, that we would find ourselves in submission to your Word and your Spirit, and having a life-changing experience with the Word of God, Lord, that you may receive glory. Father, we love you. We thank you for all these things ahead of time as we know you'll be faithful. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I'd like to read to you Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. The Bible says, And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, when we speak of the will of God, we speak of the desires that God has. We could speak of the will of God for a people uh, such as the nation of Israel, and God has much to say about His will for His people Israel. We could speak about the will of God for the church, and God has a will for the local New Testament church. We could speak about God's will for nations, and God has a will for nations. Some of those wills we know, some of the details we do not. Uh, we do know that God deals heavily with nations in prophecy, in the Word of God, and God does have a will and a desire for them. And I believe that God has a will for families, and God has a will for the individual. I believe God cares where we live. I believe God cares where we work. I believe God cares what we drive. I believe God cares about all these things. And I believe that if we'll seek the face of God, we can know the will of God. But let me say, along with that, uh, that I think some people speak too flippantly about knowing the will of God. And I think we have to be careful about telling people what the will of God is uh, for their life if it's not defined in Scripture. And you say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, I mean this. By God's grace and by His help, I can know the will of God for my life, the specific or detailed will of God. I believe with all my heart that I'm right now in the center of God's will. 
I believe that I'm where God would have me to be. Now, that's not to say that I'm perfect, not to say that I never do anything wrong, not to say there's not areas in my life that need work. But concerning where God would have me to be, uh, where He'd have me to pastor, to work, the people He'd have me to work with, the wife He'd have me to have married, the child that He has for us, I believe all of these things in my life have been according to the will of God, not giving any glory to my own self, for I didn't do anything except seek the Lord's face. And God has dictated and shown to me in His will in some things. Now, let me go ahead and tell you, there's other things that I desire and seek the will of God about that I don't yet know the will of God concerning. And the same thing is true of your, you in your life. I believe we can know these things. But by the same token, I don't believe God's under any obligation to share His will for your life with me or His will for my life with you. I believe God deals with us individually. But I do believe there are not, there's not only the revealed will of God, there's the unrevealed will of God. In other words, details that we seek God's face about that are not dictated to us in Scripture. But then there are things dictated to us in Scripture that we can know for sure in a universal sense concerning all saved believers that they are the will of God. The Bible says uh, this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you, that you should abstain from fornication. That's something we don't have to pray about. Amen? That's in the Word of God and it's in the will of God for us. We could go all through the Word of God. I believe it's the will of God that we join ourselves to a New Testament church. Uh, the Bible says we're uh, not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. And we are commanded to do this. So I believe that we can know the will of God, not only in the broad sense, not only in the sense of things that are scripturally revealed, but things that are spiritually revealed in the life of the individual. But I do think we need to be careful about trying to tell others what that will is for them. And I'll share with you, and, and I'm going to get to preaching here in just a second, but there's been times when I could have kept people here or kept people doing a job or kept people serving, if I wanted to lie to them and tell them I knew the will of God for them, that the will of God was for them to stay. There's nothing I wanted more than for them to stay. Nothing uh, that I wanted more for them to keep serving. And many times I did believe in my own heart that what they were doing was to their own damage. But I'm not going to take upon myself the job and office of the Holy Spirit to dictate to people the will of God except what's revealed in Holy Scripture. You see, I believe we can know the will of God, and I believe individuals can know the unrevealed and detailed will of God in their own lives. And so I see in this passage that Peter gives us some things that are the will of God. Now, let me say this. Uh, it, it's no use seeking the unrevealed will of God if you're not obeying the revealed will of God. Now, I know a lot of people, and I used to, whenever I was a youth pastor, you know, teenagers, teenagers don't think no different than adults. It's just they ain't learned to be quiet about some stuff. Amen? Uh, they just haven't learned that yet. And so they're brutally honest, and they're blunt, and they ask questions. God bless them for it. Adults should probably be more that way. But uh, teenagers would always want to know all these details about the unrevealed will of God, or the extra-scripture will of God, or however you'd like to call it. They'd want to know, Brother Toby, who am I going to marry? Where am I going to work? Where am I going to go to college? What am I going to do? And I would always tell them, don't worry about those things. Are you doing what the Word of God commands you in your day today? You see, I think there's a lot of times that we're saying, God, tell me. God, tell me. God, tell me. And he's saying, I've already told you, and you're not doing what I've already told you to do. 
We're seeking God in these matters, and God does have a will about them, and God does seek and desire to reveal them to us. It's funny, when we talk about the will of God, we just assume that God's playing hard to get. And sometimes we assume that God just has a desire to manipulate and to play games with us and force us to not know what His will is. But that's contrary to the nature of God. Can I say to you that God is a God of revelation? He has revealed Himself to mankind... In His Word, He has revealed Himself to mankind in His Son. He's going to reveal Himself to mankind through His presence. God is a God of revelation. And so why would we believe that in every area of His being and essence, that He desires to reveal Himself to humanity, except when it concerns His will in the lives of His children? I believe we can know the will of God. But I believe the pathway to knowing the unrevealed will of God is the revealed will of God. You remember what our Lord said to Peter. He said, uh, launch out a little bit from the shore. Whenever he's calling Peter into the ministry, he said, let me teach from your boat. You see, uh, there was lots of boats that were launched a little ways from the shore. He wasn't asking Peter to do anything remarkable by telling him to launch a little bit from the shore. Can I say to you that when uh, Peter did that, Peter could understand the reason that God was having him to do it. The Lord told him, Christ told him, said, launch out a little bit from the shore so that I can teach the people. And Peter was obedient in this matter. He said, okay, Lord, my boat belongs to you. My life belongs to you. My livelihood is yours, Lord, to do with it as you please. And he gave him his boat, and he launched out a little bit from the shore, and he began to teach all manner of men, multitudes of folks. But there came a moment when the Lord looked at Peter, and he said, All right, Peter, what I did was I just used you to reach multitudes. He says, But now I've got something just for you. And he says, Peter, I want you to launch out into the deep now. If Peter had never been obedient in launching out a little bit, he could have never launched out into the deep. He had said, Lord, it's my boat. I can't imagine doing that. How am I going to trust you? That's my livelihood. Lord, if you wreck that boat, my family's going to starve. You wreck that boat, I have no means to put food on my table and shoes on my children's feet, clothes on their back. Lord, I can't trust you. The Lord would have walked on and we wouldn't talk about the apostle Peter. We'd talk about someone else. But no, Peter said, okay, Lord, if you're the Son of God, if you're the Messiah, you're the one that gave me the boat, so it's your boat, so you can have it back. And then God said, all right, Peter, I'm going to teach you a greater lesson now. Launch out into the deep. And what did Peter learn through that lesson? He launches out into the deep, and the Lord says, let down your nets. And everything within Peter screamed that that was a futile effort. Everything with his flesh said, there's no sense, Lord. There's no sense to do it. But what did Peter say? Peter said, we fished all night and caught nothing. That used to be my life verse, amen. (laughs) especially during fishing season. We fished all night and we've caught nothing. He said, nevertheless, at thy word, at thy word, we will let down the nets. The word of God is the premise and the basis for the will of God. We need to understand that there's no sense in letting down our nets unless it's at thy word. There's no sense in launching out unless it's at thy word. The thing that gave the courage and the consequences of that evening was the word of God. What was God doing? He was revealing his will to Peter. Peter, I desire to have your boat. Peter said, okay, Lord, you can have my boat. 
then he said, Peter, I desire for you to launch out deeper. Peter said, okay, we'll go as far into the middle as you want us to. He said, Peter, I have a desire for you to let down your nets. And he said, Lord, that don't make no sense. But at thy word, we'll do it. And who was it that benefited from it? As Peter hauled those full nets back up onto the boat. You see, sometimes the revealing of the will of God is a progressive thing. It's interesting. And I'm just trying to follow the Holy Spirit. And this is what he's having me preach. So just tuck in with me and we'll, we'll get to First Peter here in a second. But it's interesting to me that the Lord did not say to Peter, Peter, I'm going to have you to launch out a little bit from the shore and I'm going to teach for a while. And then after we're done teaching, I'm going to have you launch out into the deep. And Peter, I'm going to have you let down your nets and you're going to have a great drought of fishes. No, you see, sometimes the revelation of the will of God is a progressive thing. God tells us what we need to know when we need to know it. That's why we think he's playing hard to get is because of how impatient we are. We want God to tell us everything now. When the truth of the matter is, if God told us everything now, we'd run for the hills and the caves screaming if we knew what the pathway would hold. We don't want to know everything. We think we do. But the Lord knows what we need to know when we need to know it. So he tells us as we need it. As we need it. What is that that uh, people call it? Need to know basis. And so it was an incremental thing. Now, I'll tell you where a lot of Christians miss the will of God. God says, push out a little bit from the shore. And they say, no, Lord, not unless you tell me what we're doing afterwards. Or they say, no, Lord, I don't have time for it. No, Lord, I can't afford to do it. No, Lord, I'm not interested in doing it. So it says, all right, well, you'll never launch into the deep then. And they're stuck on the seashore with their boat grounded in the sand. Cleaning their nets. You meet a lot of Christians that spend all their life cleaning their nets. Just working over. You know, when they'd clean their nets, they'd also mend their nets. And they'd go through and they'd look for more and they'd look for more and they'd look for more. Places where they could mend it. Things that they could do. You know, a lot of Christians have that dissatisfied feeling in their life because they spend all their time replowing the same ground because they don't have the faith to move off of it to other pastures. And they're just replowing and replowing and replowing. Find a little pebble here, a little victory there, a little thing here. But they live a dissatisfied Christian life because somewhere back through the years, God said, launch out from the shore. And they said, no, Lord, I can't do that. See, the will of God is sometimes an incremental thing in the way it's revealed. But I believe we can know the will of God. I believe if we'll surrender and submit to God in the things He's told us to do, He'll tell us more to do. I believe, isn't that the lesson that's taught to the stewards that are given uh, the talents that they are to watch over and they're to be faithful in watching over those talents? And the Lord says, you've been faithful in these, I'm going to give you cities. And so oftentimes we're not faithful in the little things and God can't trust us with big things. And we're waiting around for God to reveal to us His will in a matter. And He's saying, I have, and you won't do it. And as long as you won't do my will in that small thing, I know I can't trust you with anything bigger. I believe we can know the will of God. But I believe it begins by knowing the revealed or the scriptural will of God or the scripturally dictated will of God. And we can go all through the Word of God. We won't have time to do all of that tonight. But Peter gives us five things that I want us very quickly to notice tonight 
that we know are the will of God. It doesn't have to be prayed about. doesn't have to be debated. doesn't have to be discussed. We know these are the will of God. Look with me in verse number 15. Peter says, for so is the will of God. Well, what, what? So what? Not so what like so what, but what is the so? So is the will of God. Well, he tells us that with well-doing you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Can I say to you that one thing that is always the will of God is for us to silence ignorant men through a godly testimony. It's always the will of God to maintain a good testimony. We spend a lot of time trying to solve with debates what God tells us we can conquer through behavior. Isn't that right? I know a lot of uh, women that have, in their marriage, they've had a lost husband. They spent their whole time trying to debate him into getting saved, and it's all to no effect. Well, how does the Word of God say that a woman's supposed to handle it if she's got a lost or an ungodly husband? The Bible says that uh, he, beholding their chaste conversation coupled with fear, should be saved without the Word. In other words, they can do with their actions what they can't do with their words. Some of you say, well, the Bible's telling me to be a doormat. No, I looked in the English, the Hebrew, the Greek. I even looked in Swahili and couldn't find the word doormat anywhere in that verse. It's not saying to be a doormat. It's saying that if you'll show the love of Christ, you can show them something with your actions that they won't listen to with, their word, with your words. And the same is true for us as believers. There's a lot of things a man can argue with, but he can't argue with the true and genuine love of Christ exemplified and exhibited by a faithful Christian. And you'll find as you live, and I could give example after example of this, but some of you know this is true. Some of you, uh, at the place that you work, you're the prayer person. And when something goes wrong, somebody comes knocking on your door to have someone pray. And I know that there were times when I worked on a public job, and, I, and I'm going to be honest with you, and maybe, maybe I should feel bad about this, but I mean, I let people know I was a Christian as God gave me liberty to. I witnessed to people. But every conversation I had with people didn't have three points, a poem, and an invitation. It just wasn't feasible. You've got to work. You're there to make a paycheck. I understand that. But I found when I'd be on public jobs, if I'd just maintain a good testimony... It wouldn't be long before I'd have people coming to me and saying, Hey, I saw this on the news. What do you think about this? Hey, I got a friend or a brother or a sister, and they go to church, and this happened at their church. You ever heard of that before? And pretty soon they'd come to me, and they'd be talking to me. And I'd have some of them come to me, and they uh, people that had never darkened the doorstep of a church didn't know what prayer was. But they'd come and say, Hey, my mama's having surgery. Would you have your church pray for her? Well, how did that happen? didn't happen through a debate. didn't happen through an argument. And can I say this? We ought to stand ready to give a, an answer for the hope that lies within us. But there is such thing as winning the argument, but not winning the person, too. I've never met a single person get saved through an argument. And that's not to say that we shouldn't stand for truth. It's not to say that we shouldn't be able to explain what we believe. Not to say that there aren't times when we shouldn't be willing to debate or to uh, show the truth of the Word of God. But I'm merely saying this. We ain't going to get nowhere having a theological conversation with a spiritually dead person. We're not going to get nowhere. No more than you'd get anywhere if you just go down to the funeral home and have an argument with a corpse. 
The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. They're spiritually discerned. He can't understand those things. Look at the example our Lord gave us in John chapter number 4. That woman wanted to have a, a theological debate with him. And she said, well, you know, uh, the, the, uh, our, our ancestors, they worship in this mountain, Samaria. And your ancestors, they worship in Jerusalem. It says, where are we supposed to worship? You know what the Lord said? The Lord said, you know, not what you worship. You know what he's saying? He's saying, you're talking about worship and you're lost and undone. I, I mean, listen, you, that, that, that's as good as a, as a uh, corpse trying to talk about quartet singing. It's just silly. It's nonsensical. He said, you know not what you worship. He said, well, one of these days Messiah's going to come. When he comes, he'll straighten it all out. You know, that's the equivalent of the modern-day person saying, well, one of these days we'll die and we'll really know, won't we? That's the same thing. And Christ said, oh, no. He said, I am he. I am he. I'm not saying there's not times we don't discuss. But I'm saying you can do a lot more with your actions than you can sometimes with your arguments. And there are certain things that we don't have to pray about. One of them is maintaining a good testimony. If you know something is going to bring shame to the name of Christ, you don't have to pray about it. Don't do it. If you know something, my, you know the Bible says in Psalms 23, He leadeth me in paths of righteousness, not for my name's sake, but for His name's sake. You don't have to understand everything God asks of you, because He's not leading you in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Not everything that you do for the Lord is going to make you look popular in the world's eyes because He's not doing it for your name's sake. He's doing it for His name's sake. But any time that you know something might bring shame to the name of Christ, you don't have to pray about it, just don't do it. You know it's the will of God to not bring shame to the name of Christ. I often wonder, some of you uh, may have children or loved ones and uh, you've been ashamed at some of the ways that they've lived their lives and the things that they've done. And could you imagine the shame that must come to the heart of God when He sees one of His children being unfaithful, being sinful, not being a good testimony, taking that name of Christ and running it through the mud? See, there's some things we don't have to pray about. We know it's the right thing. And one thing is to silence the ignorant men through our good testimony. It says it's free, not using your liberty for a cloak of, a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. You know what that means? Let me just give you what it means. It means not as a smart aleck. And not as a carnal Christian. As free, not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness. You know what that is? That's all these people that every time you come to them with the Word of God and you say, hey, this is what the Word of God says. We ought to live a separated life. They're saying, you're judging me. Isn't that right? You hear people say it all the time. You know, the Bible says to judge not that you be not judged. Yeah, it does say that. It also says that the spiritual man judgeth all things. You see, where it says judge not that you be not judged, it says with what measure ye mete out judgment, it shall be meted unto you. In other words, the standard that you judge other people by is the standard you're going to be judged by. So uh, let me just clue you in. One of these days, the book is going to be open. We're going to be judged by it. So we're not doing anything wrong when we judge things according to the Word of God. And that doesn't mean that we're everybody's police. But what it does mean is that we have the right to look at things, give, it a, give a scriptural definition, and either admonition or exhortation or condemnation according to what the Word of God teaches. There's nothing wrong with that. 
So it's uh, these people that say, well, you're judging me, you're judging me, you're judging me. You know what they're doing? They're using their liberty in Christ Jesus. Not bound under ceremonial law, not bound under Old Testament law. Nobody can go and take them and uh, stone them to death or uh, burn their family. No one can take them and uh, stone them to death for being rebellious against their parents or for stepping out on their spouse, whatever it might be. Nobody's going to do that. They're not under law anymore. They're under grace. And they're saying, oh, well, my salvation doesn't depend on these things and you shouldn't judge me for it. Can I say that your salvation doesn't depend upon those things? But if you truly get born again, God's going to put a love and a desire in your heart to please Him and to do the right thing. And I worry about people that walk around with that theological chip on their shoulder all the time saying, go ahead, knock it off. Go ahead, say something about the way that I dress and knock that off. Say something about the language I use and knock that off. Say something about the things that I take part in or the places I go and knock that chip off. And that's the grace chip, you know. (laughs) It's under grace, it's under grace, it's under grace. You know what they're doing? They're using their liberty as a cloak of maliciousness. They're doing wickedly in the name of their liberty. Peter says, that's not the will of God. Uh, Do you know grace was not given so you could live out from under the law? Are you listening now? Grace was was given so that you could live above the law. What did Christ say? He said, except your righteousness exceed that of the Pharisees. You say, well, how could we be more righteous than the Pharisees? I mean, they they did the ceremonial cleansing. They wore the phylacteries on their head and on their hands. I mean, they wore the long garments and had the hymns. And how could we live more righteous than them? Those weren't righteous. Those weren't tokens of righteousness. Those were tokens of ceremonial law. You see, once you pulled those things away, Christ said, you're like whited sepulchers. You're washed and beautiful on the outside, but on the inside you're full of dead men's bones. How does that righteousness exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees? By having the inborn righteousness of Jesus Christ through the new birth and through the resurrection of Him. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever, walking with him and his righteousness shining through us. So it's always the will of God for you to have a good testimony. Always the will of God for you to walk circumspect. And these people that say, well, you know, God just haven't dealt with me about that. And I understand there are things that God deals with certain individuals about. I'm aware of that. But can I say that 90% of that talk is nothing but hogwash? Ninety percent of that, it's stuff uh, that even a two-year-old could tell is unscriptural. But they say, well, God's not dealt with me about that. Maybe God's been trying and you've not been listening. Amen? I'm not talking about little details here and there. But I mean, it don't take, I mean, it don't take a rocket scientist to know that if man, when he sinned and fell from his innocence, if God put clothes on him, we probably ought to still be wearing clothes. Amen? I don't take a lot of... I mean, I'm not, I'm not a smart man. Can I confess that? Most of you knew that anyway. I'm not a smart man. But there are some things that I can wrap my little pea brain around. And so it leads me to believe that when people say that, they're just trying to use that liberty as a cloak of maliciousness. They're trying to say, hey, I'm under grace. Don't you say anything about me. Don't you say anything about the way that I'm living. I'm under liberty. But how are we supposed to live? He says, as the servants of God. How does a servant live? Seeking only the pleasure and desire and wishes of his master. Servant don't get to have any say in how his life is. If a question arises, you know what he does? He looks to the master and says, Master, what would you have me to do? You remember, and I don't even know how far I'm going to get, but 
You remember in the book of Exodus chapter 21, the law concerning the servant whose servitude had been paid. The Bible says, Six years shalt thou serve, and in the seventh thou shalt go free. And uh, the Bible says, but if you uh, had no family, had no wife, had no children when you came in as a servant, then when you go out, that wife and that child, they stay with the master. But if they were already yours, they could go with you. And it says that there's a provision. You know what a servant could do? If the servant decided that I love my master, and I love my wife, and I love my kids, and I love my life, and though I have to be a servant... I'd rather be a servant to my master than a free man in this world. You know, the Bible says that he could go to the public court steps and they would take an awl. You know what an awl is, a leather working awl. It's basically just a big spike. And they would take that man's ear and they would lay it against the doorpost. And they would drive that all through it. And that was an outward expression of the fact that he was saying, I love my master. And I'm willing to be a servant of my own volition. Can, can I say to you that, you know, when that happens, you know, we preached on the Passover this morning. That servant had to take and put his blood on the doorpost, the same way that that lamb's blood had been put on the doorpost. You know, when you really get a handle on the Christian walk, when you learn something about the crucified life, when you see yourself as crucified with Jesus Christ, that what Paul said in Galatians 2.20? I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. You know what Paul's saying? Paul's saying, I'm dead. When Christ was crucified, my old man was nailed to that cross with Him. All of my selfish desires, all of my flesh has been crucified but I still have to live and operate. So whose wishes and whose desires and whose passions are they that drive me? He says, nevertheless, not I, but Christ liveth in me. That's the crucified life. And Paul's not saying his flesh has been eradicated. Paul's saying his flesh has been crucified. There's a difference. You say, what's the difference? Paul summed it up when he said this, I die daily. Paul's not saying, hey, I nailed it to the cross that one time and I don't struggle with it no more. Paul says, I nailed it to the cross and that old booger just keeps trying to climb off there, rear its ugly head in my life. He says, so every day I have to nail him back up there. Every day I have to tell my flesh no. Every day I have to look at myself. My flesh says, you don't want to do that. Paul says, I have to look at it and say, no, you're right, I don't want to, but Christ does and He's living in me. And nail that flesh to the cross. As the servants of God, with that outward expression of your love. Isn't it interesting that in the Old Testament times you could tell whether a servant loved his master by his appearance? Oh, I know, it got quiet, I know. I guess that means stop preaching, amen. Amen. <laughs> Oh, you could tell by the outward appearance. I don't want to dwell too much on this because I think sometimes there's too much dwelling on it. But can I say there's a vast difference between the poor old sinner that just got saved two weeks ago and don't know no better and people that have sat under preaching for 20 and 30 years. I, I, I mean, listen, don't we expect more out of a 20 or 30 year old than we do out of an infant? There ought to be some growth in our Christian walk.
And we ought to be able to expect some things out of people being saved a few years. We ought to be able to expect some things. I'm not saying that you take the poor sinner that just got saved a couple weeks ago, never been in a church house, don't know a thing about the Word of God, and if they come in and they're not dressed like they're ready for Sunday school or they got the wrong Bible under their arm, that you meet them at the door and blast them and skin them and run them off. That's foolishness. That's not the love of Christ. I'm not advocating that. But I am saying this, that you get a few years under your belt, there ought to be some things you've learned. And we ought not make the same excuses for folks been saved for 20 and 30 and 40 years as we do for someone that's been saved 20 and 30 and 40 days. You see, we ought to be able to expect some growth. And it says that the master could be, or the servant's love for the master could be identified by his outward appearance. And I kind of think that even you and I, whether we love Jesus or not, maybe not by our outward appearance, but certainly by our outward action, and that includes our appearance sometimes. I mean, we ought to look different, we ought to act different, we ought to talk different, we ought to sound different. We ought to smell different, amen? We ought to be different in this present world that we live in. The Bible says, to come out from among them, to be separate. Be ye separate. You say, what does separate mean? It means with nobody else. <laughs> it means different. If you've got something and you want to distinguish it, what do you do? You separate it to the side. If a, if a cattle rancher has a particular cow that he's wanting to take to the slaughter, what does he do? He cuts it from the herd. He separates it so that it's easily identifiable as being that individual. We're to be separate. We're to be different. Now, we don't do these things because some preacher asks us to. Amen? I mean, all I ever hear is, well, people just do that for the preacher. Well, some people do it for the preacher, but if they're doing it for the preacher, they're doing it for the wrong reasons. No, we ought to do it for the Lord. We ought to do it for the Lord. Not using our liberty as a cloak of maliciousness. Not saying, hey, I'm under grace. I've got my ticket to heaven. And I'll just coast on through. Now, that's not how a servant acts. That's not how a servant behaves. You know, you meet some sons. It's pretty evident to me. I ain't going to get through the rest of my outline, so I'm just going to go on. You know, sometimes you meet children that do their parents that way. You know it? You, you ever, and some of you, some of you parents and grandparents, I'm going to let you testify and shout here. Sometimes kids take advantage of their parents, amen? Sometimes when they see you, they don't see those eyes, they see dollar signs. You're just, a, they come to you and you just, you're a big ATM. They don't see a mouth, they see that thing that dispenses money. And they come to you, and they don't see a heart. They see an ATM pad, and they got to figure out the combination. And they take advantage, right? But a servant don't do that, do they? Servant would never do that. Sometimes a son will take advantage, but a servant won't. Can I say, if you've been born again by the grace of God, you're a child of God? But that don't necessarily mean you're a servant of God. So how do I know if I'm a servant? Am I serving? Have I put myself under the tutelage and under the uh, supremacy and under the authority of the Master? There's lots of folks been born again. And maybe a son would say, hey, I've got my inheritance. That's what the prodigal did. The prodigal said, I've got my inheritance. Bye, Dad. <laughs> Some of you said, I didn't know his name was prodigal. I thought his name was whatever your kid's name is. Amen. I didn't know his name was prodigal. No, sometimes a son will do the 
daddy that way, but a son will, or a servant will never do his master that way. No, a servant's never going to come and take advantage of the master. You know why? Because they have a firm grasp of their place. They have a firm grasp of what they owe to their master. They have a firm grasp that he has the power of life and death in their hand. Sometimes children don't fear their parents, but a servant always fears his master. And I'll tell you what's happened to Christianity today. We've lost the fear of God. We don't fear Him anymore. He's just Grandpa. He's just Santa Claus. He's just the big man upstairs. We don't fear Him anymore. We don't have that reverence anymore. We don't appreciate Him. We don't love Him like we ought to. We look at Him and He's just a dispensary of blessings and gifts. He's not a thrice holy God. We've lost our fear and awe and reverence. We take lightly the opportunities we have to serve Him and to live for Him. And then we wonder why our life's a mess. We wonder why we wind up in the mess that we're in. Well, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We're never going to have wisdom except we fear the Lord first. That's the beginning of it. Nothing will make somebody a simpleton quicker than not fearing God. Because that's the beginning of wisdom. It says in Proverbs chapter 1, it talks about people turning from their simplicity. It says, how long till you turn from your simplicity, O ye simple ones? Well, how do they do that? Through fearing the Lord. It's how we grow in our walk is we fear the Lord. By the way, it says that here in a minute, don't it? It says, fear God. Fear God. You don't have to pray about whether it's the will of God to fear God. To treat Him with respect and honor and revere. And by the way, listen, respect and honor and revering Him is not limited to refraining from taking His name in vain or bowing your head when people pray or taking your hat off. You can do all those outward symbols and exa- And God bless you, I recommend them to you. But if you're not living for Him, you don't fear Him. It's nothing but lip service. If you're not living for Him, you don't really fear God. You say, how do you know that? Because if you really feared Him, you'd see the value in living for Him. If you really saw Him as holy. And, and we use this terminology a lot. We say awesome. Man, that's awesome. Awesome literally means full of awe. If you saw God as, as being awe-inspiring, awe-striking, uh, if you saw Him as awesome, it would change the way that you live. We're commanded to fear God. God gave a whole book of the Bible almost exclusively to the topic of wisdom and fearing God because of how vital and important it is. You don't have to pray about whether it's the right thing to respect and to honor God. The last thing it says there is what? Honor the king? And can I say to you that I do believe that it's talking about a political figure when it says that? Some of you say, oh, preacher, preacher, I can never honor our president. Hey, the, the folks that Peter wrote this to were probably under Nero. I, I'm not advocating any political move. I know what a mess our country's in, but can I just say to you, the things was a lot worse when he wrote this than they are today. But can I say that there's another king I believe it's also talking about. I believe there's a practical import of it where it's saying to honor the king, the political figure. But I believe there's a greater king that we are commanded to honor too, and that's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. You know what it means to honor someone? It means to give them respect and to serve them. 
to show honor towards them, to show servants towards them. We had uh, at Brother Ralph's funeral the other day the honor guard. And if you've ever been to a military graveside, you've seen the honor guard. And they're a group of individuals, and they're there for two reasons. One of them is to do a sign of respect or a show of respect. They fire the volley. They play the taps. They carry the casket out. They present the arms. They're there to show a sign of respect. But the second thing is they're there to do a service. They're there to do a service, a duty, a responsibility. And if you talk to those boys, it becomes evident right away that they're there out of duty. And I don't mean that they're there begrudgingly either. What I mean is that they see that as a responsibility in their life to give honor to a fallen soldier. And they're there out of duty. You say, what does it mean to honor God? It means to serve Him. Even when duty is the only reason you're doing it. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Even when it ain't fun. Even when it don't seem fruitful. Even when it don't encourage you. Even when you don't feel like it, you do it anyway. Why? Because the Bible says we're to give honor to whom honor is due. It's a duty. But then it's also to show respect towards Him. How do we show respect towards Him? How did that honor guard show respect to, that, to Brother Ralph? How did they do that? You say, well, they played the taps and they shot the rifle volleys. Can I say to you that when they shot the rifle volleys, it didn't necessarily say anything respectful about Ralph by those three volleys, right? I, I mean, when, when they played taps, it wasn't like Ralph wrote taps and we all sat around and said, what a great job Ralph did writing that song. No, you see, what was it that showed that respect? Their presence, them taking the time out. For a man that they didn't even know. You see, how do we honor? We honor through service. That's how we honor. You don't have to pray about serving God. Right? You don't have to pray about it. Now, you may have to pray about the capacity. You may have to pray about the ministry. I'm aware of that. But you don't have to pray about whether you ought to be doing something with your life for Christ. You're created for that purpose. That's your chief reason for existence. All things are created, what? For Him and by Him. We're here for Him. That's why the church is here. We're here for Him. That's why the individual is here. We're here for Him. That's why the Holy Spirit is here. He's here for Him. You don't have to pray about whether it's the will of God to do something for God. You may have to pray about what that is or when it is or the capacity of it. I'm not trying to make I'm not trying to overly simplify it. But I'm just merely saying this. When we're sitting at home doing nothing for God, we don't have to pray about whether we ought to do something for Him. And that may be giving out a tract. It may be talking to an individual about their soul salvation. It may be doing a, a bit of work at the church. It may be going out and getting with somebody and praying with them and encouraging them. But every one of us, we don't have to pray about whether it's the will of God for us to serve Him. It's always the will of God for us to serve Him, to do something for Him. We're to fear God. We're to honor the King. These things are the revealed will of God. And I could give you 50 others from Scriptures. Yea, and every New Testament command that's given to us is undoubtedly the will of God. If you love me, keep my commandments. It's the will of God that we keep His commandments. Forsake not the assembling yourselves together as a manner of some. It's the will of God we have a church family and that we be faithful to. 
uh, the Bible says that we're to look for His coming. It's the will of God that we live in light of Jesus' second coming. The Bible says to behold what manner of love. It's the will of God that we meditate on the love of God and we could go all through the Word of God. But let me just leave you with this thought. It's all futile. It's all futile to seek that unrevealed will when we're disobedient in the revealed will of God. You say, where do I start tonight, preacher? I'm unclear about some things that lay before me in my path. Preacher, I'm unclear about what God has for me. Let me tell you where you begin. You begin by getting an altar and saying, Lord, search me and try me. See if there be any wicked or unclean thing within me. Lord, show me if there's some area of my life I'm being unfaithful in or neglectful in. Lord, show me something in my life if I've made an idol out of it. Show me if there's some sin that's unconfessed. Lord, just take control of my life and show me how I can walk closer to you. That's the first step in finding out the will of God for your life.